We are finally getting a picture of how the racketeering and conspiracy case against Donald Trump and 18 other co-defendants. We're finally getting a picture as to how that might play out in court in Fulton County, Georgia. And boy, oh boy, is it a complicated picture. As you may know, two of Trump's co-defendants in all of this, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough, lawyers, they each asked for their trials to go forward next month on October 23rd, ahead of everybody else's trials. And today, Judge Scott McAfee officially separated Ms. Powell and Mr. Cheesebro's trials from the rest of the people charged in this case. Judge McAfee wrote in his order that separating these trials is a procedural and logistical inevitability and that additional divisions of these 17 defendants may well be required. So we may get to see this case broken up into even more smaller groups of cases, which sounds easy and it sounds reasonable, and it also happens to be unbelievably convoluted. It is literally the most head-spinning version of trial Tetris you have ever seen. Here are the 19 defendants in this case. As I mentioned before, Kenneth Cheesebro and Sidney Powell will now officially be tried together and separately from everyone else. But as for the other 17, Donald Trump, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark, fake elector Sean Still, David Schaefer, and voter fraud conspiracist Robert Cheeley, they want their cases split off from anybody who wants a speedy trial, which so far is just Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell. Rudy Giuliani, meanwhile, doesn't want to be tried alongside Chesbrough and Powell, and it looks like he's going to get his wish. Former chief of staff Mark Meadows wants to be tried all by himself in federal court. But unless his appeal goes his way, that is not going to happen. And right now, it doesn't look like it will. Mr. Scott Hall wants to be tried separately from all the defendants who were not accused of crimes related to the alleged voting machine breach in Coffee County. Harrison Floyd wants to be tried only with the other people accused of harassing elections worker Ruby Freeman. Two of the remaining three co-defendants have not yet filed any motions to sever their cases, But Ray Smith, a former lawyer for the Trump campaign, has told the court he thinks the co-defendants should all be tried in, quote, manageable groups, whatever that means. It is like the seating arrangement from hell. Only the stakes are, of course, astronomically higher. For now, what we can say for sure is that Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell look like they will be the first co-conspirators in this case to face justice in a courtroom. The judge said today that he expects the jury in this case to be selected by November 3rd, which means lawyers could start presenting arguments to that jury well before the end of 2023. And we are getting a look at what that might be like as well. Today, lawyers for Ms. Powell and Mr. Chesbrough are in court arguing about what kind of evidence they will be allowed to use in this case. And there was a lot of disagreement. So much so that at one point, the judge had to admonish Chaseborough's attorney after he accused the prosecution of defaming the defense. So the fact that she got up here and lied, lied to the court. All right, Mr. Grumman, I think we need to go down that road. Your Honor, she lied to the court, and I apologize, and she defamed my co-counsel. Mr. Grumman, I've said it's over. All right. Well, I wish you would have stopped her from defaming my co-counsel. Okay, now multiply all of that, that kind of tense exchange, multiply it times 17 defendants all at once in the same courtroom. And you have a window into how untenable a trial for the 17 remaining defendants happens to be. It is not tenable. 
but we are not sure exactly what happens next. What we do know is that two of the 19 co-defendants are going to trial on October 23rd. According to the prosecution, it is going to take four months to try that case. Trump himself still does not have a court date, but the judge has set a hard and fast deadline of December 1st for the 17 other defendants, including Donald Trump, to submit any pretrial motions. Judge McAfee has made very clear that he is not going to slow walk this case. He does not appear ready to let Donald Trump push this case into the distant future, which means that 2024 is going to be a very, very busy year. Buckle up. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general for the Obama administration, and Christy Greenberg, a former federal prosecutor and former deputy chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York. Neil and Christy, thank you for being here tonight. Um, Christy, it is, seems inevitable that the 17 others are going to be divided up. But as we've just pointed out through the extensive and, may I say, sophisticated graphics department here at this program, <laughs> dividing up those 17 is Tetris from hell. How, I mean, how do you think the judge is going to begin to go about it? And what are the priorities in terms of de- determining these next groups? So when I've prosecuted large cases, having 20 to 30 people in the case, usually the judge will ask for some input about the groupings of defendants, say, you know, if the evidence is all related to the Coffee County ele- you know, scheme, for example, you know, would it make sense to try all of those defendants together so that you're getting an overlap in the counts and the evidence that the the jurors are going to be hearing. You know, same for the other schemes. You've got very discrete schemes, even though it's all one big RICO conspiracy. So the prosecutors are probably going to provide that input about what makes sense. The judge also signaled he wants to hear what the pretrial motions are. What mm-hmm. kinds of defenses are these different defendants going to raise? And maybe depending on those defenses, that could affect the groupings as well. Um, Neil, throughout this process, the the prosecution has said, we want to keep everyone together. No matter who the defendant is, we're going to have the same witnesses and call the same evidence. Is that a bluff? I mean, because if that's true, then it's four months per per trial, which could take us into, oh, I don't know, 2025, 2026, depending on how many groups there are. Yeah, I don't think it was a bluff, Alex. I think that the prosecutor here, Bonnie Willis, genuinely wanted to have a prosecution of all 19 at once, but I don't think it was realistic. And, you know, like Christie's a really experienced federal prosecutor, so I want to defer to her on this, but I thought it was not something that was at all likely to be granted. So today's decision to sever the two, Chesbro and Powell, from the remaining 17, I thought was quite predictable. And now the you know big question that you're asking, Christy, is, okay, so what's it going to look like now? And, you know, to me, the million-dollar question, and obviously the trial against all these people, all 19, is important, but when is the trial of Donald Trump? We've been yeah. waiting years and years for this. It's now, we know, not going to be October, but is it going to be right after this trial, or we're going to have to wait even longer? And here's where I hope that the judge and the prosecution really do you know, respond to these defense delay tactics that Trump is, you know, known for and make sure that this trial gets on the road. Yeah. Given, Christy, how explicit Donald Trump has been that like a a cornerstone of his defense is pushing this into the future as long as possible. How much does the judge take that into consideration as he tries to figure out, Okay, is Donald Trump in a group with other people? Is Donald Trump by himself? How do you figure out the Trump of it all if you're a judge? 
So I think the judge also has to be mindful of the calendar. There is the March 4th trial in D.C., and I think that is going to stick. Judge Chutkin means business. I don't see her moving that really unless there is a very compelling reason to do so. You also have the Manhattan DA case in late March, which I think that'll get moved. But then you have the May classified documents case. And I think the two federal cases here really would take precedence. So I can see if there are groupings that Donald Trump may be looking at spring, he may be looking at fall of 2024, depending on how this all plays out, if she's if the judge is going to be more deferential to these other trials that are already on the calendar. Well, I mean, and it would see it would seem like the judges are going to talk to each other at some yes. point, right? Absolutely. And Judge Chutkin already said that she did that, that she was in touch with Judge Mershon about the fact that her trial may spill into his. So you have to figure all of these judges are talking and trying to figure out the schedule. I mean, when you just said the fall of 2024, I don't know if you could see my eyeballs pop like an inch out of my head, because that's obviously the ape. That's the that's the, the penultimate months leading to a November presidential election. If Trump is indeed the Republican nominee, I mean, is there any acquiescence to the reality that this person is theoretically going to be in the throes of a presidential campaign when scheduling something like that so close to an election? No, it's true. And, I, and look, I think the realities of this are going to be considered, even if they're not explicitly stated by the judges, that they're going to be thinking of that in the back of their minds. But if you're looking at at least four months. The judge said eight months for these trials. That will take you at least for the next group to look at sometime in the spring and the next group potentially sometime in the fall. You figure a number of these defendants fall out because they take pleas. Some of them may cooperate. You're probably looking at about maybe, depending on how many you have left, about two additional trials to schedule. And if he's not looking to set up a ton of delays, that schedule may make sense. Neil, what about the, I mean, there's also the question of the jury, like how many jurors are you going to ultimately need from Fulton County here if you're having multiple trials? And I mean, does that, does that process concern you given how difficult, I mean, even in the grand jury's indictment here, there was one uh, grand juror who consistently voted in favor of Donald Trump and the sort of stakes for jury selection and all of this is going to be outrageously high given the fact that you might have to have multiple jury pools, how's that going to work? Yeah, so jury selection is, you're absolutely right to put your finger on it, an issue. I don't think it's an insurmountable issue, even if we're going to have four or five trials. Um, And even though this is a very hot button case that everyone knows about, we faced this in the George Floyd murder in which I was special prosecutor. The first thing that happens is what we call voir dire, in which you question all the prospective jurors for bias. And you can first question them, Alex, in a kind of group setting, and then on an individual one. And even in something in which people feel really passionately about, it's not that hard to get 12 people who want to do the right thing, who say they're going to listen to the evidence with an open mind and not make up their mind before they hear the evidence. So I certainly think that's possible in Fulton County. I don't think it's going to take months and months for each jury to be impaneled, but I could imagine something very much like what we saw in Minnesota and, you know, it takes a couple of weeks to impanel a jury. Um, And, you know, the stakes on the other side, if you get that wrong, if like a juror is seated who's got bias is obviously catastrophic. So it's worth that investment of time. Yeah. I mean, the other piece is the judges, right, Neil? I mean, Judge McAfee suggested that other judges were willing and ready to answer the call 
to go to trial with some of these cases. But how I mean, how practically would that work? There, there, there's yeah. a lot of business that the Fulton County court has to take up that has nothing to do with Donald Trump or his attempts to to co-opt the 2020 election. Right. You've got that problem. And you also have the problem that simultaneous trials on the same issues might itself create some legal problems because any of those defendants could say, hey, you know, I couldn't monitor what was going on in the other trial because I had my own trial. But it turns out the evidence in that trial was inconsistent or things like that. So kind of multiple simultaneous overlapping trials, unless they are really discrete, like the fake electors just break off that one piece and nothing else just break off the, you know, pressure Raffsenberger piece. Maybe it's possible. I don't know. But I think it's pretty tough. So I think it's more likely than not that we'll have the same judge decide these cases one after the other and in trials one after the other. That's an unenviable position, in my humble opinion, Christy. I wonder if there's a way to expedite some of this. Like we, Mark Meadows is trying to get his case removed, right? He's in the appeals process to get it moved into federal court. The assumption is, Whatever happens to Meadows on that count is going to be applicable to anybody else who wants to have their case removed, right? Does the same thing hold true? For example, uh, Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbrough want access. They want access to the grand jury investigation itself. If they are granted access, does that mean everybody else in the case is granted access? Yeah. So the judge said there that where there are trial witnesses, individuals that the prosecution has said we are going to make these these witnesses testify at trial, that the defense would be entitled to their testimony before the special grand jury. And that makes sense. That would be information that they would be entitled to. What did they previously say? Do I want to impeach you and try and confront you with any of those statements if there are inconsistencies? So they would be entitled to that information. The question is, you know, how much she has said that she's got up to 150 witnesses for a Fonny trial. Willis. Fonny Willis. And then the special grand jury report, there were 75, according to that, witnesses that went before the special grand jury. So is there an overlap? Are they the same? So I'm not sure how much of an argument there's really going to be. I think we'll have to see who she is actually looking to call. But it does stand to reason that whatever rulings are made on that issue that presumably the other defendants are going to have as well would hold for those other defendants, too. Otherwise, we'll never be done with this. <laughs> right. Just really, is this is this unusually nightmarish seeming to you? Because it, it seems incredibly thorny to me. Not necessarily. These cases where you have multi-defendant cases that are 20, 30, 40 defendants, they are a lot to manage. And so scheduling, but again, usually you don't end up with that many defendants towards the end. I do think that you're going to start to see now that discovery is being produced. She has eight terabytes of discovery. One terabyte of discovery is, you know, alone just a ton of evidence. Like, you know, million, I think it's like six million or so yeah. documents for one terabyte. So this is a lot of material she's producing. Once they start to see just how much she has from over two and a half years of an investigation, you're going to start seeing ple people plead out and look to cooperate. How many terabytes does it take to secure a plea deal? That's the question. <laughs> Neil Katyal. Christy Greenberg, thank you so much for your time tonight. We have a lot more to get to, including accusing the adult son of the sitting president of corruption while ignoring actions taken by the adult son-in-law of a different president. Plus, House Republican F-bombs were flying today. We'll have more on that coming up next.
in the House of Representatives, a motion to vacate is a vote to remove the speaker. And in this House, it is an axe that has been hanging over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's head and has been since the day he took up the gavel. But today, Speaker McCarthy apparently finally had enough. In closed-door meetings this morning, he told his fellow Republicans, if you want to file a motion to vacate, then file the effing motion. In all likelihood, the F-bomb was directed to Florida Congressman Matt Gates, who has not exactly been shy about his dislike for Speaker McCarthy and who has compiled a list of hostage demands, including spending cuts and a vote on term limits and a congressional subpoena of Hunter Biden. Congressman Gates responded in the way that only he can, with a tweet reading, Pull yourself together, Kevin. But can Kevin pull himself together? It is an exasperating job catering to the unsatiable. And nothing Kevin McCarthy has done to appease his conference has so far worked. Not even ordering the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. But so far, there is no exit from this devil's bargain, even and especially as critical funding bills get held up and the government inches closer to a potential shutdown. Based on the current schedule, there are nine legislative days left to avoid that outcome. Joining me now is Washington Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. She leads the Progressive Caucus in the House. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you so much for being here. I Is it a foregone conclusion that we're going to have a government shutdown? I mean, how in your mind is that avoided at this point? Alex, it's great to see you. And look, I think that this is a real uh, challenge that is before us because this Republican majority, this speaker has turned his gavel over to the extreme right wing of his party who are making demands that are absolutely unattainable. So they have not been able to pass 11 of the 12 spending appropriations bills that are just the basic task of governing. Instead, Kevin McCarthy is trying to keep his speakership by dangling this shiny new object of impeachment of Joe Biden, absolutely baseless and absurd impeachment of Joe Biden before the caucus, trying to keep that and at the same time distracting from the work that needs to be done. So I think what we need to do is look to the Senate, because in the Senate, a democratically controlled Senate has worked with Republicans to pass all of their appropriations spending bills with bipartisan, significant bipartisan majorities. They can take those bills and Pass, uh, pass, send them over to the House. They can take a clean, continuing resolution to give us a little bit more time, because at the end of the day, Speaker McCarthy is going to have to decide if he wants to be a speaker or if he is just uh, essentially handing the gavel over to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And one more thing, Alex, just let's be clear. They can't pass their own appropriations bills because they are trying to pass a nationwide abortion ban. They are trying to completely eliminate public education. They are trying to make sure that the wealthiest tax cheats don't have to pay taxes. Those are the things that they're trying to pass in these appropriations bills. As policy writers, it's not going to fly. Help me understand the Democratic calculus here, though. If Kevin McCarthy worked across the aisle to get anything done in a bipartisan fashion, it would basically drive a nail into his coffin as speaker. And I guess my question to you is, is it worth it? Is, is whoever is, replaces Kevin McCarthy better than Kevin McCarthy? Or is the devil you know better than the devil that you don't know? 
I mean, look, I think that they are just showing that Republicans can't govern. And whether it's Kevin McCarthy or the next speaker, unless they recognize that they are just one of three chambers that are needed to pass bills and they have to work in a bipartisan fashion, we are going to be in Republican chaos, Republican shutdown land until 2024. This is not going to bode well for them for the elections. I think they know this. If we have a shutdown, this is a Republican shutdown and we are careening towards it. I think for Democrats, listen, if Kevin McCarthy needs us to bail him out, it's going to be extremely difficult without some sort of a power sharing uh, uh, arrangement. And we haven't gotten to the point where we're even talking about this. But I don't think he should count on Democratic votes to bail him out. I think Republicans have to show the country that they know how to govern. Otherwise, they're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. And all of us, the American people, are going to have to deal with the consequences of that. It's a very sad moment. I don't take any joy from this, Alex. In the meantime, Kevin McCarthy is giving away whatever the MAGA caucus wants, including the impeachment inquiry. It feels like Democrats are taking a there's a more of a concerted strategy to push back on the impeachment uh, boondoggle. Is that what's happening behind closed doors? Can you give us any insight to the gravity that Democrats feel is uh, in front of them in terms of an impeachment situation, if you will? Well, I think that the gravity is because it's baseless and absurd. I don't think that we I mean, I've listen, I've been through an impeachment uh, inquiry. As you know, I sit on the Judiciary Committee. Our impeachment inquiries of Donald Trump were started in two situations that were very serious. One where he was essentially trying to hold uh, uh, Zelensky um, hostage in order to get military aid from the United States. And the second where he incited an insurrection. There is nothing in the uh, Republican investigations that they've been taking on for over a year um, into President Biden. There really is nothing there. And that's part of their problem. So how are we handling it? We're taking it seriously. We're pushing back on it. We are making the very clear comparison between President Biden, where there is nothing, no evidence at all, and uh, Donald Trump, who has now been indicted, as you've covered many times on your program, um, of 91 felony counts, and that includes grand juries. That is, uh, this is, this is very serious national security and election interference. So we're taking it seriously, but I'm also trying to make sure people understand that this is distracting from the real work. You said uh, in, in your opening that we've got nine legislative days left. Yeah. That careens us to a shutdown if they don't start doing their work. Nine days. Mark it on your calendar and see what happens next. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you so much for your time. As always, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Alex. We have lots more in store this evening. What to do when you are President Biden and you're looking at a possible strike by auto workers that could also threaten your climate agenda and a potential federal criminal trial for Hunter Biden in the middle of a presidential election. A lot on his plate. All of that is coming up next. Stay with us. Just six months after leaving his job at the White House, where he was a senior advisor to the president, Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner's brand new private equity firm, scored a $2 billion investment from Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. 
according to documents obtained by The New York Times, before making that massive investment. The Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund had a panel of experts screen Jared Kushner's proposed deal, and they did not like it at all. In fact, they called it unsatisfactory in all aspects. The panel objected to what they called the inexperience of the fund's management and the possibility that the kingdom would be responsible for the bulk of the investment and risk. The panel voted unanimously against agreeing to the deal. So pretty clear, right? Not going to happen. Sorry, Mr. Kushner. This just isn't the right fit for us. Eh, not so fast. Because days later, the fund itself, led by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, the fund overruled its own advisory panel. They went ahead against the unanimous advice of a panel of their own experts and invested with Jared Kushner. So that is all shady on its own. But where it gets really bad is when you look back at the things that Kushner did while he was inside the White House, things that Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular seem to really, really appreciate. Very early on in Trump's administration in March of 2017, Kushner helped arrange a White House visit for MBS that treated the crown prince as if he was a head of state well before he actually was. It was a significant breach of diplomatic protocol, and it was an even bigger deal given the internal struggle about who would be Saudi Arabia's next leader. Then in May of that year, Trump made the unprecedented decision to make Saudi Arabia the site of his first foreign trip as president. Do you remember this video? The the Egyptian president and the Saudi king and Donald Trump all weirdly touching that strange glowing orb. In his memoir, Kushner claims that that trip was his idea and that he had to fight Secretary of State Rex Tillerson over it, which, you know, in retrospect, makes sense. That same month, Kushner helped negotiate a $110 billion weapons sale to Saudi Arabia. Then in October, Jared Kushner took an unannounced trip to Saudi Arabia. Here, he reportedly stayed up until nearly 4 a.m. with the crown prince, and he stayed up till 4 a.m. on multiple nights, swapping stories and planning some sort of strategy. The very next week, the crown prince started rounding up hundreds of Saudi Arabia's most powerful people, including his own direct competitors for the throne. And they were held, some of them for years, as prisoners in the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton. Now, as nice as being trapped in a Ritz may sound at first, associates of many of those detained at the Ritz said that they were subjected to torture during their hotel imprisonment. But that does not appear to have changed Mr. Kushner's view of the crown prince. No. Then, of course, there was the brutal murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Well after the CIA concluded that MBS had personally ordered Khashoggi killed, well after that became a global disaster for the crown prince, who was trying to make a name for himself on the world stage long after that. And after the Crown Prince's Ritz-Carlton purge, Jared Kushner was still defending him, saying things like, yes, the Crown Prince made a few missteps, but he is a good ally. Now, I wanted to stick a pin in that incredibly sketchy $2 billion deal by former President Trump's adult son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who was actually an official in Trump's administration, influencing policy directly. I wanted to stick a pin in that before getting into the new charges filed today against President Biden's adult son, who has never been a government official of any kind, Hunter Biden. Former Senator Claire McCaskill joins me to talk about that coming up next. 
President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was indicted today in connection with a gun he purchased back in 2018, and he is now facing three charges, two counts for making false statements in order to buy the gun and a third charge for possessing the gun while addicted to drugs. While this is the first time the son of a sitting U.S. president has been federally charged, it may not be the last. The special counsel overseeing this case, a Trump appointee named David Weiss, is considering bringing additional tax charges against Hunter Biden. We are just not sure when. Now, from the beginning of all of this, Hunter Biden admitted he paid his taxes late and he was expected to plead guilty. But the gun charge is a whole different story. That charge was supposed to be dropped as part of a deal Biden's lawyers reached with the government prosecutors. But it seemed to be impacted by Republicans in Congress and ultimately appeared to fall apart in court. Now, even though congressional Republicans have been pushing for Hunter Biden to be indicted, today's charges are far from satisfying them. And this is why. That's one of about a dozen crimes that Hunter Biden's committed. And ironically, that's the one crime that he committed that you cannot tie Joe Biden into. Joining me now is former U.S. Senator and MSNBC political analyst Claire McCaskill. Claire, it's so good to see you both as a former senator and a lawyer. I am trying to understand what the point of this indictment is, given the rarity of prosecutors seeking federal indictments for these kinds of gun violations, especially when there's no serious crime involved. Democrats obviously hate it. Republicans are unsatisfied with it. Is this Merrick Garland's DOJ trying to make a point? What do you think it is? I don't think Merrick Garland is making the calls here. I think this is all the special counsel who is deciding. I think this special counsel has bent to the pressure that was put on him around the plea deal that he had agreed to. Um, and, and by the way, the irony of this is this these charges in my state, the Republicans don't think the federal government should have any say when you buy a gun. They've passed laws saying that we should ignore all federal gun laws. So in Missouri, they think that Hunter Biden didn't do anything wrong if they were a Republican. And that's really true across this country. Uh, there is an irony that it's a gun charge. This case will be decided in court as it should be. There may be other cases that will be decided in court as they should be. But Alex, here's one thing we can't escape. Donald Trump made money off being president of the United States. Donald Trump's kids all made money off being president of the United States. Hunter Biden appears to have made money because his father was vice president. They all did it. It's not illegal. And even Hunter Biden's own partner said Joe Biden did nothing other than say some hellos and acknowledge people's existence, but was never involved in this. And that's why this is so bad, because the White House has to fight back on this. They can't ignore it. Yeah, I don't know if you saw. You probably did not, because I'm sure you were doing other things. But right before the segment, we had a long sort of explanation about the incredibly unsavory things that were happening with Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman in that may have all ended in a $2 billion investment from the Saudi sovereign wealth fund that uh, to Jared Kushner's private equity, equity company. I mean, the asymmetry of this apparent corruption there 
with, you know, someone who is addicted to drugs owning, a, a, by his lawyer's attest, attestation, an un, unloaded gun for 11 days. I mean, the asymmetry is mind-boggling. It is staggering. I also wonder, Claire, whether, you know, the more Joe Biden has to talk about his son, who is an addict, who made a bad decision on the gun charge specifically, in a way, it it reminds people of the the tragedy and the darkness that Joe Biden has had to live through, that his family has been through. I'm not sure it does what Republicans think it's going to do in terms of character assassination. I think you're right. I think it would be helpful if the president would acknowledge that his son did things that were not in good judgment and that were inappropriate, but that he loves them. I think it's important to remember, too, how potentially Joe Biden was afraid for his son in terms of him losing his life. As you know, the gun was thrown away by somebody who cared about Hunter Biden because she was afraid he was going to kill himself with it. So clearly there is some deeply personal, deeply difficult tragedies around Hunter Biden and around all of Joe Biden's children, um, all of whom have passed away with the exception of Hunter Biden. That doesn't excuse Hunter Biden's conduct, but it explains maybe why the president is so reluctant to say what I think a lot of Americans want him to say, which is, I love my son, I will always love my son, but he showed really poor judgment in the way he tried to use my position to leverage his own personal money. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, the tra- the tragedy that is inherent in all of this, the amount of disappointment that a father must feel when his son is paraded like this and his uh, sins, for lack of a better word, are on full display in the glaring Klieg lights of, 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 of the media is, is really wrenching. Do you think this has any, the intended effect, as far as Republicans are concerned, of uh, creating a false equivalency between, uh, you know, missteps on the part of the Bidens and the 91 felony counts um, and the indictment of Donald Trump? Does that change opinions in terms of independents and moderates? I'll tell you what, I, uh, I'm old enough to remember Swift Boat and John Kerry. Yeah. And I remember everybody saying, oh, it's so ridiculous. No one, he was a war hero. You know, yes, he disagreed with the war, but nobody's going to believe that. And then her emails um, for months on end, they, there was, they were just ignored. This issue was just ignored and it took root. And I actually believe this has taken root now that they are successfully muddying the waters with a lot of Americans who aren't paying close attention and saying, well, you know, yes, I'm sure he knew what his son was doing, or I'm sure he knew his son was benefiting. There is, you're seeing some of that in the polling. So that's why I'm saying they cannot assume that this is going to go the way they want it to go. They need to stand up tall and be definitive about why he was using a pseudonym email, why Hunter was copied on that email, um, be willing to talk about the fact that he absolutely made no money off anything Hunter was doing. I think they need to take it more seriously because they are. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's real that people are beginning to feel there's there's must be something wrong here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like bo- it's like boxing shadows. But unfortunately, I think the president has to box them. 
Uh, Claire McCaskill offering some important advice to the Biden administration, Biden campaign. Claire McCaskill, as always, thank you, my friend. And some news. Claire has teamed up with Jen Palmieri to host MSNBC's newest original podcast, How to Win in 2024, is out now. You can scan the QR code to get it wherever you get your podcast. That is double trouble. I love that pairing. Get it now. We have one more story for you tonight. Workers at Detroit's big three automakers could strike as soon as tonight. We're going to get into the threat that poses to the economy and political alliances and even the president's climate agenda. We're going to have more on that right after the break. Stay with us. Summer may be over, at least unofficially, but the summer of strikes decidedly is not. The United Auto Workers Union, the UAW, representing nearly 150,000 people, is poised to launch a coordinated strike at midnight tonight after contract talks have stalled with the big three automakers. That would be General Motors, Ford and Stellantis, which owns Chrysler. According to ABC News, it would be the first time in the union's 80 plus year history that it struck all three companies at the same time. Now, this kind of strike would be challenging for any president, but it is a particular challenge for Joe Biden. He has frequently proclaimed himself the most pro-union president in American history. But Biden has also made electric vehicles a cornerstone of his climate agenda. And automakers want to use non-union factories to make batteries for those cars. And that is a major sticking point in these contract negotiations. And it is also a major issue for President Biden. Joining us now to discuss is Faz Shakir, former campaign manager and senior advisor to Bernie Sanders, as well as the founder of A More Perfect Union. Faz, it's great to see you. There's literally nobody else I'd rather talk to about this. And I wonder if you think that this is a tension the president needs to resolve publicly and privately between, you know, the clean energy agenda and organized unionized labor. Well, let's take each of those in turn, Alex, and it's good to see you. Let's talk about clean energy for a second. EV jobs. So you and I, we're, we're supporters of EV jobs. I, I, I would venture to say that a lot of people watching this show, you and I would agree that when we hear the words EV, electric vehicle jobs, we think the following things, jobs of the future, clean energy, climate friendly, science oriented. What I will posit to you is that while those are all true, what Donald Trump and some of the right know is that for many workers, when they hear EV, they also hear worse paying. Right. Harder and fewer jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think when you wrestle with this, what we're fighting for is that those jobs of the future and uh, that these clean energy jobs are good paying middle class jobs. That is not the case now. And a lot of these jobs, you're paying 16, 17, 18 dollars an hour as a temp worker to do them. So if these are going to be the jobs of the future, the fight is make sure they're damn good jobs. Make sure they're like the jobs of old. Right. If you worked in the big three auto plants and you were getting thirty two, thirty three, thirty four dollars an hour, why can't an EV job be similar? And that I think Sean Fain is 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 locked in on. He's trying to set the standard. He's saying, let's save an industry and save workers who are going to be the future of this industry. Well, and it is pretty clear that, you know, we know sort of anecdotally about the, the issue that liberals, Democrats, blue staters have when it comes to courting union votes or sorry, you, you know, white collar and to some degree, blue collar votes, union labor is no exception to that, right? If you look at the numbers, I think 2020 exit polls, 56% of voters in union households nationwide back Biden, but 40% of them back Donald Trump. And the UAW estimates that one third of its members voted for Trump in both 2020 and 2016. This is a 
big concern. And I think it's more than just this particular negotiation. It's about the, the sort of the narrative that, that Democrats present to, to organize labor and, and how much of that hinges on what happens right now. This, the, I, we're going to own, you and I would agree, that this is a hard challenge for the president, right? It's not easy. But I think you, you make your name in hard moments. And this is a hard moment. When workers go on strike, it's one of those clarifying moments. Whose side are you on? As the old Woody Guthrie song goes, right? And so you're saying, you're going to take arrows there. The, the, the corporate propaganda will tell you that, oh, the economy is going to be terrible. Everything's going to go to hell. It is all because of these workers. And what their assumption there is that we can't go any higher than this number. They've gotten $21 billion in profits just in the last six months alone. They can't move beyond a you know, 15% pay raise. Really? Come on. We know you can. It's just a matter of policy choices. You can give $9 billion back to stock uh, buybacks or shareholder dividends, right? That, that's no problem for you. Tell me you can't go above a 15% uh, increase for workers. I think you can. I think you can outpace COLA. I think you can outpace inflation. You can do it. It's just a matter of choice. So for the president, it's leaning into making the worker side of the argument. It's saying these are what they're after. You just want a decent middle-class lifestyle, which you can afford. You are not broke. You are not poor. Let's help get this economy right for a lot of workers who are all feeling this pain. And if you look at polling, people are on this side of the argument. They know that corporate America has largely screwed them and tightened wages and forced a race to the bottom, particularly for auto workers who, during 20, 2008 and 2009, were told to make the sacrifices. Yeah. So here we are a decade later. You can't tell me that you got enough profits to make sure that they're holding solid middle-class jobs. Of course you can. Let's get well, there. Hey, yeah, the profits, the, the corporate compensation, if you look at what the CEOs of the big three automakers made last year, Ford CEO, $21 million. Stellantis CEO, $24.8 million. GM CEO, $29 million. I mean, this is the story of American inequality right here being and, borne out in this last, negotiation. In the last four years, that, that increase has gone up 40% for those CEOs, the same number that Sean Fain is asking for workers. Right. Like not unfair. Let's let's have an honest conversation. Don't be wrapped into a fear mongering debate about all oh, the the sky is going to fall because workers are asking for something unreasonable. They are not. But it is these moments where no pain, no gain. Right. We, if you go on strike. Yes, we're going to own that. There might be some short term pain. Uh, but we, we're owning that there's going to be long-term gain out of it. Just know, what are you shooting for? You're shooting for an industry standard where workers can benefit in an economy in which billionaires, billionaire companies are making incredible profits. Yep. The we got to just share that. Share that in a way that makes the workers who deliver those profits, deliver that productivity, feel like they're being honored with a decent lifestyle. Keep your eyes on the clock. Could happen as soon as tonight. Baz Shakir, my brilliant friend, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate you on this. That is our show for this evening. 